0: Welcome back to another episode of UCL Giving Voice Podcast. I'm one of your hosts today, Vivian. I'm currently a UB student on the MSc Speech and Language Science course.
1: And I'm your co-host, Erica. currently a year A student. We are really excited to be your hosts for the first episode of 2023.
0: This UCL Giving Voice Podcast episode will explore a speech and language therapy approach pioneered by UCL called Better Conversations. We'll be joined by the team behind this approach to understand how better conversations came about, who it is for and how it is the future of therapy for conversation and communication disabilities. Today we are joined by Dr Suzanne Beek, Professor Stephen Block and Dr Anna Volkmer.
2: Hi I'm Suzanne Beek and I'm a speech and language therapist by background. And I've been working at UCL for for 20 years now. And my research is into the communication um, and conversation of people with a range of um, acquired difficulties. So my work focuses on adults with acquired speech language and communication difficulties. And my interest has always been in conversation analysis and looking at what happens in people's conversations when they have communication difficulties and um, understanding some of the wonderful strategies that they come up with themselves to deal with those problems, and then using that knowledge to design some interventions that can help other people.
3: Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Block. Um, I'm also uh, a background as a speech and language therapist, I have a background as a speech and language therapist, And my research work has taken me on a really interesting journey. As a clinician, I was um, heavily involved in working with people with progressive neurological conditions like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease, and um, people at end of life as well. Um, And I've carried on that interest um, as a researcher, using the methods of conversation analysis to understand both the competences and the difficulties that people experience in conversation when they have progressive communication loss and speech loss and the use of augmentative communication too. Um, I'm really interested in the normal conversation as well. So just understanding how people do what they do when they're having a chat, how they live their lives and how we can learn from that in order to understand how things go wrong with disorder but also how things go right as well. So very much a philosophy that communication difficulties don't always lead to difficulties in conversation. They can sometimes lead to, to new um, ways of doing things, which is what I'm particularly interested in. And um, I've, I've been um, working at UCL, like Suzanne, for, for over 20 years now, and um, just really uh, yeah enjoy the, the privilege of having time with colleagues um, and students to think and explore new ideas about conversation and communication disorders.
4: And I'm Anna Volkmer. I'm also a speech and language therapist. And um, I graduated as a speech and language therapist in 2002 and only worked clinically, um, d- only coming back to academia in, well, eight years ago in 2015. Now, um, but While I was working clinically, I developed a particular interest in working with adults with progressive language difficulties, so adults with dementia. And and as I was working clinically in that field, I recognised that there was a real lack of research evidence available. And that's what really inspired me to come back to research and um, create some of that uh, evidence in order to advocate for those clients, to advocate for commissioning of services and to advocate for the role of the speech and language therapists and all the things I felt we could do to support people's communication. And um, given that I was working clinically with this group, I found that the the area that I was most interested in because people were asking about it was conversation. So that really led me to focus my research on um, developing interventions for p- people with dementia in the specific field around conversation and interaction. And um, And as part of my research, I'm also i particularly interested in using conversation analysis methods to understand how those interactions work and how they inform the interventions that we can deliver and, and how we interact as we deliver interventions. What, what are the key components? What are the things that make a difference to enable us to deliver effective interventions? Thank you very much.
1: Better Conversations is an approach to the study of conversation in communication disability and a growing suite of intervention programs. It is an approach pioneered by UCL and underpinned by the principles and methods of conversation analysis, which is an approach to the study of social interaction and language. Thank you so much for joining us today. After hearing this brief description, as the lead of Better Conversations Lab, what would you say Better Conversations is and what inspired the development of this approach?
2: So, Better Conversations is essentially an evidence-based approach to what we call communication partner training. And communication partner training itself is an umbrella term, so it covers lots of different approaches. Uh, And that is communication training for conversation partners of people with communication difficulties and needs, but also training for those people themselves with the communication difficulties and needs. So they're trained together as a partnership. Um, And Better Conversations is underpinned by our research here at UCL, which um, myself and Stephen and Anna have been involved in for a number of years now. And it's research that we do using a method, as you mentioned, called conversation analysis, which really lets us look at how conversations work, how they get disrupted by communication difficulties and needs of all kinds. And um, we're interested in using that to give us a lens on how we can help people who have those communication difficulties and needs and their conversation partners to have better conversations together. And really, Better Conversations was inspired by people with aphasia that I met. So this was actually before I even became a speech and language therapist, but later as I was um, training and then working. And I remember meeting people with aphasia who I would have these fantastic conversations with, despite the fact that they had quite significant communication difficulties. And I was just fascinated. I I wanted to know how how was it working? How could we help others who were actually finding conversations much harder to adapt successfully like these people with aphasia had? So the Better Conversations work started in aphasia, uh, but it has grown into uh, lots of different areas now.
0: I see. I really love how Better Conversations is now developing into a bigger approach. And thanks for sharing that with us. So our next section will be exploring how is Better Conversations being used in speech and language therapy today. As experienced clinicians in the field, we hope you can all share with us your experiences. So my first question is for Anna what are the suitable client groups for this approach? And what are some important factors to consider to determine whether a client is suitable for better conversations?
4: So that's a really great question. I think there's kind of a number of points to address there in terms of what we see, we know from the research, and what we can use in clinical practice. And one of the things um, to say is that within the Better Conversations family, we have evidence and we've developed programs for people with um, stroke aphasia, uh, for people with progressive aphasia, so primary progressive aphasia, and for people with Parkinson's, um, dysarthria related to Parkinson's. But we are developing further programmes in this field, and certainly clinically, I've used better conversation approaches um, more broadly with people with, who've, who've got cognitive communication difficulties related to brain injury, who have other types of dementia, so other rare types, including things like posterior cortical atrophy or Alzheimer's um, or even frontotemporal dementia, where they might develop similar language difficulties as people who have um, primary progressive aphasia, but perhaps also additional cognitive difficulties. And then we also know That there are um, families with uh, children who are using, of course, parent-child interventions that look a lot like have many overlapping uh, kind of similarities or share many overlapping kind of principles or characteristics with what we do in um, better conversations. So I think clinically um, there might be lots of different clients with whom this might be a useful approach. But what's perhaps also useful for us to think about is not only the people, but the people around that person. And I think what's really important to say is that um, when we're working with people with communication difficulties, it's probably uh, one of our first responsibilities before we embark on delivering an intervention is to talk to them about what interventions they might be interested in or be find useful or what what options there are um, so that they can uh, participate in a shared decision um, around embarking on this type of intervention right from the start. It might be for some people this is really valuable in acute. They might find it more useful in the more chronic stages of a post stroke, for example, Or perhaps if they've got a progressive disease like Parkinson's or dementia, they actually might need top ups all along the way. So I think we need to think about it more broadly than just um, what type of diagnoses people are living with.
0: So I too believe as a clinician that is actually very important for us to help our clients to be able to like communicate with their loved ones especially. And so I'm really glad to hear that this approach will be applicable to so many despite of their clinical labels. So my next question is actually for Stephen and I'll be interested to know what are some barriers when you're trying to implement this in the clinical world.
3: Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about barriers. I I, I made some notes thinking, um, would I want to call them barriers or maybe just minor hurdles, but whatever we call them, they are certainly things that can be overcome. Um, And certainly there are potential hurdles that we might want to consider when we implement BC in clinical practice. Um, In no particular order, I'm going to just go through four key areas. The first is actually the speech and language therapists themselves, their own confidence um, in doing something new. So for some therapists, even though communication partner training may be very inherent in what they want to do, what they believe in, and maybe what they're already doing informally, the idea of taking something in a structured way um, and implementing something new can sometimes present challenges. So there's, there's definitely something about confidence I have no doubt that all speech and language therapists have the skill and the ability to deliver uh, an approach like better conversations, but when you've never done it before it could sometimes um, take some some thinking um, and there may be some concerns that politicians might have that because it has its foundations um, as you said, in conversation analysis, that somehow this is like having to do conversation analysis. And it really isn't. There's there's no transcribing needed. There's no intellectualizing. It's very much about working with people, with those around them, to understand how their communication is really impacted on a day-to-day life. So it is actually very intuitive as an approach for therapists. Then there's find appropriateness and expectations. and I was absolutely right that, that there are so many people for whom BC um, might be appropriate, but it might not always be appropriate at that particular time for that particular person. So this is an approach that, that is it, it it's a tool part of our toolbox as clinicians. And we wouldn't want to be using the same therapy approach for everybody in every context. What we want to be knowing is for whom is better conversations most appropriate and at what time? And there may be motivation reasons, there may be cognitive reasons, there may be other clinical priorities that mean that BC at that particular moment isn't the right thing to be doing. But we shouldn't let those things be a major barrier to not um, considering um, BC in that context. And of course, people must have a communication partner. We can't always assume that, that people do have somebody with whom conversation, um, partner training better conversations is going to be appropriate. But it doesn't always have to be a close family member. Sometimes it could be a friend, um, somebody else that that the um, person has regular um, communicative engagement with is is absolutely fine. The third area is is service structure and culture. Um, And this is where we become a little bit looser, because some services might lend themselves and some environments might lend themselves more comfortably to a better conversations approach um, certainly my own experience has been as a clinician working in the community with people with with long-term neurogenic conditions and working in people's own homes um just it feels right to be taking a conversational approach but i can imagine that if you're in a more acute setting It might present initially a sense that it's going to be more of a challenge. But I think that we're all beginning to realise that there is no environment in which a better conversations approach isn't appropriate. It's more just about thinking how we need to approach it in slightly different ways for the contexts that we're working in. And finally, um, I just kind of thought more practically, and that's that's just the sense of the use of video, video storage and consent, and and these issues that that clinicians may come up and say, well, I'd really like to do this, but it's very difficult for me to record things, and we don't know where to store them, and our trust has policies that that say we can't do this. And again, we've we've been talking a lot about this um, over the recent years, um, and actually, when you calm things down and you take a more measured approach, A clinician does have um, the autonomy to be delivering therapy in the way that they see fit and making recordings of people and storing um, evidence as they they work through their clinical work is all part of clinical decision-making. And I don't think that we've actually come across in the end, any evidence of somebody saying that they can't do this because they are not allowed to, but there is sometimes a perception that these things are barriers to getting better conversations underway. Um, and I'd always say that all of these barriers or hurdles that, that I've mentioned are all things that people have managed to navigate with help from others, with support from the Better Conversations community. Um, so I, I, I try to be positive and I am aware that things aren't always easy clinically, particularly when they're new, but in the end, where there's um, a will and where there's a motivation, I think that clinicians are always incredibly innovative and creative and find ways um, to navigate these hurdles well. Thank you.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Stephen. So I also think like any other approaches, there must be a lot of hurdles, barriers or challenges. But thanks for letting us know that we should not let that hold us back from ever trying better conversations in the future. So looking from another point of view, in your experience, Suzanne, what are some facilitators for implementing a better conversations approach?
2: Now, that's a great question, because what we're learning in speech and language therapy research currently is that there's a whole body of science around something called implementation of healthcare interventions, Um, that we can draw on to help us with this, uh, with some of the barriers that students identified, uh, but with having um, strategic strategies to put in place to overcome some of those hurdles um, and uh, strategies that we know work from this uh, science of implementation. So some of the things that are coming out of this work by um, Kirstine Shrubsall in Australia, who's doing some great work looking at implementation science and communication partner training specifically. Some of the implementation strategies, as they get called, so these are the facilitators for implementing better conversations, would be training. So that's something that SLTs know all about and do really well. And we, as a team, offer regular Better Conversations training for speech and language therapists to join. We do a lot of that remotely because it's better for access, um, but we also do offer free workshops as part of our two-yearly Better Conversations conference. So training, getting yourself trained to increase your knowledge and your skills and that all-important confidence that Stephen was talking about, is one really good facilitator to get better conversations implemented in your service. So train yourself and your colleagues up. And then another very good implementation strategy, uh, and this works across healthcare interventions, is to have a champion on the team. So someone who's delivered the intervention before feels that they can champion it across the team and the service with managers with commissioners um, so having this kind of a champion on the team just means there's someone who's always got better conversations communication partner training in their heads and is thinking about the ways that it can be promoted and um shored up in the in the general service that's offered and we've had a really lovely um uh, uh, development this year with our student SLTs here at UCL who have themselves become better conversations champions by training their practice educators after their teaching sessions with me which has been a wonderful development that they came up with themselves so half a dozen of them now have done this with different practice educator teams and it's a it's a wonderful thing to see and it's something that we're going to continue to do in future years. The other really good um, implementation strategy is building communication partner training into a care pathway. So that really speaks to what Anna was saying about uh, getting it on the agenda to discuss with every single client who goes through that care pathway as an option for them. Would they like this kind of intervention? Would it Address the goals that matter to them. And our colleagues on the South Coast, including Nicola Sermon, did some really lovely work where they um, built CPT um, in the form of our Better Conversations approach into their care pathway for stroke. And it just means that it prompts all the SLTs in that service to have a discussion with each and every client about Better Conversations as an option and whether they would like to uh, take it as an option for them. So there's uh, there's some really, really easy strategies that can help uh, facilitate getting this kind of intervention happening for all of our clients in services.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. It is exciting to hear how speech and language therapists are finding the best ways to adopt this approach And one thing I love about becoming a speech and language therapist is knowing how it is a lifelong learning journey and how we are all advocating for holistic care. So as the year A's in the speech and language therapy course have recently applied for our research projects, I understand there are some ongoing research projects on better conversation. So what are some of these projects at the moment and are there more lined up in the future?
4: There's always projects lined up for the future. We're very um, keen to expand the Better Conversations work we do. And, um, for example, uh, I'm actually currently advertising a research position for a research assistant uh, to join the uh, team on Better Conversations with Primary Progressive Aphasia. And um, that that research assistant would be working to develop um, the better conversations with primary progressive aphasia intervention to be delivered both remotely and to other people with different types of um, rare dementia in particular. But um, there's also, uh, I would say, other plans in progress. Uh, to expand, you can't see my facial expression here if you're listening to a podcast, I'm trying to be very, I've got an exciting uh, kind of facial expression on uh, to, to convey the kind of um, repertoire of uh, exciting projects we've got lined up. So um, we're also exploring um, not just some of the rarer dementias, but we're we're constantly applying for research funding for um, other types of uh, projects that we can do with. um, So, Suzanne and myself have recently been applying for funding to expand our knowledge and better conversations across the dementia groups. And I should hand over to Stephen, because he can expand on some other exciting plans there too.
3: Great, thanks, Anna. Yeah, Um, so so our our current funded project is Better Conversations with Parkinson's. which is really exciting. I mean, it's it's great because we've got funding from Parkinson's UK, and I should say thank you to them for their generosity. Um, this is a project that myself, Suzanne, and a research clinician called Philippa Clay are working on. And what's really exciting, and this is something we'll come on to um, shortly, I think, is that it is better conversations by teletherapy. So it's entering into a new way of delivering um, therapy for us. And Philippa has been recruiting people who live with Parkinson's and their significant others to um, work with them and deliver a better conversations package of therapy. But what's even more exciting um, is that Philippa has really taken off with what we are call our co-production group. So it's working with people, with Parkinson's, with clinicians to develop the resources that we're using. And I think that this speaks to something very special about Better Conversations in that it's not something that we are, we're kind of protecting and holding on to. It's something that we are engaging with as a wider community of students, clinicians, um, people with um, living with different types of communication difficulty. And we are really learning and encouraging people to give us lots of feedback on how Better Conversations works, um, how it feels for them. And the study that we're doing with Parkinson's is very much a feasibility study where we're trying to explore the acceptability of better conversations as an approach. We're trying to explore the deliverability. Can we deliver it? Can it be seen as acceptable to both
0: clinicians
3: and people living with Parkinson's? So there's lots of really exciting details um, rather than it just being does it work? We're asking really important questions as to how does it work and what does it feel like when it's being delivered? And I'll just end with, with one other uh, plan that we're, we're kind of cooking up at the moment and is very much kind of out there and we're waiting for a response with bated breath and that's better conversations with motor disease. So um, I've been in touch with the Motor Neuron Disease Association and we are currently proposing a development in which we will develop resources that will live on the Motor Neuro Disease Association website, which will be outward facing for clinicians and people living with motor neuron disease to have a much greater understanding about conversation, how it's impacted by MND, um, how the use of augmentative communication is also um, influencing conversation. And we're hoping that it's actually going to generate much more interesting conversation um within the MND community to allow us to develop a more formal better conversations therapy approach specifically for people with MND and I'll just pick up on something that that Anna mentioned earlier about um, the dementias is that um, it can be really difficult working with people with progressive conditions where their communication is changing and getting harder as as in line with the disease progression And Better Conversations is just one of those really interesting interventions that allows you to adapt and evolve and move with people, even when they are deteriorating. And we don't often have many of those kinds of approaches that allow us to be so proactive with with deterioration. And I, I think that that for the future, for me, is something that is really important that we don't kind of, not that we ever would give up on people, but that we have something positive to offer because we know that even when people are in um, end of life um, and and in very severe stages of their conditions, they still want to interact and they still want to have good communications. And that's what what a lot of that is, is about for us. Thank you for that.
1: Ah, it's so exciting uh, hearing about how the lab in UCL is really championing for such progress to customise Better Conversations for different client groups, as everyone really has different lived experiences and can take away different things from the approach, even at different time points in their lives. So I also heard that the Better Conversations team is publishing a book soon. Is that true? And when will it be published?
2: Yes, it is true. And uh, we've been working very hard behind the scenes on it. With our wonderful publishers, j r Press, and so the um, the projected date for publication is in the summer this year. And our book is very much a practical guide for clinicians. So there are therapy case studies in there. There's lots of advice about measuring outcomes, uh, which clinicians often ask us about when we uh, do training so what what assessments do I use how do I capture the the changes after this kind of intervention so we're going to present in the book for the first time our better conversations outcomes toolkit as we're calling it and there's a lovely chapter by Nicholas Sermon on overcoming um, all of those uh, hurdles and barriers that we were talking about earlier so about how she has experienced implementing better conversations in her clinical practice and uh, lots of the things that have worked for her. So uh, we're hoping that the book will really help SLTs on the ground in their services to make better conversations a reality for their clients. Um, and uh, yes, I'm just looking forward to being able to hold a, a book in my hand that I've uh, written which will be my first book. Um, um, Anna's way ahead of us, she's on about number four, but um, uh, for Stephen and I it will be a really important book that we have edited and we've been talking about for such a long time, we're very excited about it.
0: Thanks for sharing with us and congratulations on the book release soon. Um, And me and Erica definitely need to get our hands on one this summer. Um, So shifting a little bit from the book to the teletherapy side again, um, teletherapy has been more accessible for clinicians and clients, especially during and post-pandemic. So Stephen have um, actually previously mentioned this a little, that it will be implemented with the field of Parkinson's. And what are some advantages and disadvantages of carrying out better conversations through teletherapy from your experience or from what you can foresee?
3: Yeah, thank you. OK, well, look, um, a lot of this, interestingly enough, I mean, teletherapy, telemedicine, telehealth has been around for a long time. Particularly in Australia, for very, very practical, obvious reasons, the distances in Australia are so huge that often centres of excellence are are much more able to offer therapy um, without people having to um, worry about how do they access. Um, a regional or national centre. So out there, over the past 10, 20 years, there's been a growing body of evidence about the use of teletherapy in speech and language therapy. And interestingly enough, Parkinson's is one of those areas that has received quite a lot of attention. Um, Professor Deborah Theodorus over in, in, in Australia has done quite a lot of work on the appropriateness of teletherapy for people with Parkinson's, the acceptability of teletherapy for people with Parkinson's. And the evidence has been quite compelling in that actually, people with Parkinson's find teletherapy to be very acceptable, and very engaging, the clinicians have enjoyed it. And it has actually been shown to produce good results. So, um, certainly when we were proposing the Better Conversations with Parkinson's um, BID um, to Parkinson's UK, which was during COVID, during the first lockdown, teletherapy seemed to be the most natural choice for us. But we were very aware that there are both advantages and disadvantages to this approach of of intervention. So the advantages um, are, uh, again, very pragmatically, it's convenient for people. Um, For for clinicians, it's more efficient, for sure. Um, But certainly for people with Parkinson's, it's less tiring. It's much more easier to organise because they're based at home. um, And so they're they're not having to worry about transport. They're not having to worry about different appointments and things. Um, It's also very easy to record conversations and sessions. So uh, admittedly, this is all part of our research study. But actually, when you've got people in Teams or in Zoom or on Skype or whatever it might be, it's really almost a given that you can just press a button to actually get a recording, which makes the, that, that process that I referred to earlier, which is sometimes perceived as a barrier to, to better conversations, just disappears because the, the recording is inherent within the technologies that people are using. I think also that there's an advantage that you can bring in other people much more easily. So if you've got people in uh, different parts of the country, different parts of the city, different parts of the world, family members or friends, They can also become part of the experience because they're not, again, having to organize travel. And I think that that's something that we haven't yet really explored, certainly in the the conversation, Parkinson's project, better conversations, of actually um, having people coming in from different um, localities. At the moment, we've just got the therapist and the person with Parkinson's and their significant other together, but there's no reason why we couldn't be having people coming in from different. different locations. And then there's just the advantage of screen sharing. So the therapist can have their resources that they can share. um, And they can be seen on the screen. So it just kind of makes it very um, organic from that perspective. But it would be disingenuous of me not to say that there are clear disadvantages, or shall we say barriers or hurdles as well. And the main one being digital poverty. So, you know, We know that um, as each generation goes through, there's much greater digital familiarity and and hopefully more digital access. But at the moment, there is still a sizable minority of people who don't have access to a device in which to engage with teletherapy. They may not have um, stable Wi-Fi. They may not even have a comfortable place to sit at home and focus on therapy. So we can't assume that teletherapy is a given for everyone. There may be some very structural reasons why it might present additional barriers. Um, But for me as a clinician, what I'm most aware of, and again, this might reflect my own experiences, my own own sense of, of what it means to be a clinician. There is something that means that when you are engaging with someone remotely, it's not the same as being co-present so not being in the same room at the same time and it may not necessarily but it may impact on what we call the therapeutic alliance or the way in which you build the relationship now i don't think it means that the relationship is any less it might just mean that you have to build it in a slightly different way. You might have to attend to things in a slightly different way. You might just need to be aware of doing things in a slightly different way. So again, I I don't think these are necessarily big disadvantages, but they are things that might impact on the way in which you as a therapist want to develop the relationship you have with the person with the communication difficulty and their significant other. Um, having said that, and I, I, I must admit, I haven't had huge amounts of experience myself of, of um, delivering therapy remotely. It may be that there are also advantages in the way in which that relationship builds um, through remote um, engagement. So we shouldn't just assume, particularly those of us who are digital tourists rather than digital natives, that it is a bad thing or it is a difficult thing or it's not the same as face to face. I think that they are different things that have a huge amount in common, but they are just doing things in a slightly different way. Um, But the the genie is out of the bottle and there is absolutely no way that we would go back and and not consider now teletherapy as an option, I think, for for, um, therapy in the future where it has advantages for everybody. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And I definitely relate to the subtle differences when having conversations online. We're actually recording this podcast online. Um, I won't say it's completely different to in-person, but there are definitely a little differences when we do this over Zoom as well. But I also believe that therapy would definitely open up more opportunities and possibilities for both better conversations and the wider speech therapy world. So in a city like London, where our clients are from a diverse background, we're aware that different cultures might have different attitudes and beliefs towards a dyad. And just for definition, that means the client and their conversation partner, or just conversations in general. We're wondering, have better conversations been carried out with clients from different countries or different cultures?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question because it's something that's starting to happen. So as Better Conversations has grown, and particularly as people have across the world, clinicians have become more familiar, certainly with Better Conversations with aphasia, which is our um intervention program that's actually been available for it's 10 years old this year our online resource for better conversations with aphasia. Um, we've been approached more and more by teams who want to translate the resources. So that's something that's been happening. Um, so therapy handouts and some of our conversational outcome measures have been translated. Um, and currently we have Um, translations into Danish and Norwegian and Swedish and Finnish and we have ongoing translations into Latin American Spanish and into German Um, but there's another really key issue here that we need to think about it's not just about translating the the handouts that we designed you know, for use in the UK. Um, And your question picks that up really nicely because you were talking about how different cultures might have different attitudes and beliefs towards working together as a dyad and also towards conversations themselves. So what's been most interesting for me recently is an adaptation of better conversations with aphasia. So not just a translation, an adaptation, which is work by Victoria Lai in Singapore, and her supervisor, uh, Susan Ricard-Liu, and they have adapted Better Conversations with Aphasia for Mandarin English bilinguals. Uh, They delivered it in Mandarin, and there's some really interesting reflections from the participants who they interviewed afterwards uh, on cultural and family contexts that um, suggest that further adaptations are needed in these kinds of areas. So Victoria found uh, that the diets in her study, there was a bit of reluctance to practice using their conversational strategies outside of therapy sessions. So that's one of the things they wanted to ask people about in their post-treatment interviews for this study. And what they concluded from those interviews was that um, the Singaporean culture is one where efficiency in your languages especially is particularly highly prized. Most people in the Singaporean uh, community are at least trilingual and English, uh, Singaporean English is the language of business and commerce usually. Um, But uh, Mandarin is clearly very important because, you know, it's one of the most spoken languages worldwide. And then people often bring other cultural languages with them, like Tamil um, languages that that, um, belie their cultural backgrounds. So communication efficiency is really highly prized in this community. And so what they found in the interviews was that people were saying that writing... Uh, or using any kind of alternative augmentative communication device, or even a low-tech strategy, um, was uh, rather stigmatised. So they didn't want to do that in public, because it wasn't something that fitted well with their view of being an efficient communicator in many languages, which is hugely revealing and interesting, I think, for us as a research team. The other thing that these interviews um, uncovered was that um, both of the communication partners um, in in the study of people with aphasia were their mothers. And that was related to issues around who cares for people with these kind of acquired neurological conditions in a Singaporean culture. Uh, And Actually, that didn't work so well in terms of having something to talk about. (laughs) So the dyad's um, common complaint was that they didn't have many common interests beyond functional needs like buying food or asking for help around the house um, to talk with um, their communication partner, who was their mother, about. So there's lots of really interesting and tantalising suggestions there about how adaptations could and should, because it's so important, take um, cultural differences um, in terms of who is the best person to be trained with and also in terms of how conversations might work and how they might be adapted. Um, That's something we really need to um, take up and explore and I, I hope that Victoria will do herself do more work in this area. So we definitely need more adaptations of better conversations, interventions, not just translations of the handouts.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. Wow, being an international student from Singapore, I am particularly uh-huh. interested Yeah, to learn how I will how this approach will be adapted and how to practice it when I go back home. And you can't see my facial expressions, but I was really smiling and nodding as I agree with what you have mentioned about Victoria Lai's findings. And it will really be more interesting to see how the approach will evolve. I did not even consider incorporating AACUs in Better Conversations. So I really look forward to seeing how more and more clinicians will start integrating and customizing this approach into their practice. Yeah, so it's very clear how Better Conversations is an example of evidence-based practice at work, and I'm so excited to learn about it in year B. So since I have yet to come across communication partner training in my placements as a year a I really feel like a speech therapy baby in fact I just ended my first placement last week so I was wondering what are some key concepts of better conversation that speech and language therapists can apply in everyday work so regardless of whether we consciously apply the approach as a formal one
4: that's a great question Erica I know we keep saying you you're asking great questions because you are and and I, I'm actually um, one of those slightly rarer speech therapists who do clinical practice and research. So um, one of my uh, my um, jobs is I work in the NHS and I run a clinic um, at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, which is part of UCLH. And we actually work with people with all different types of dementia in that clinic and we um we often have students actually come on placement with us. And um, but I as well as, as my other part of my role, of course, is on the Better Conversations team. So um holding an IHR, um some NIHR funding through a fellowship to do this research and I teach. But in that, so with my clinical hat on, which I think is probably one of the more valuable bits for the first part of your question, I would say there's basically in a nutshell lots of key principles that you can embed in your practice and I think probably you know some of the first things we've been repeating over and over again and that's a bit about having a go having a go trying to to address some of the perhaps common barriers um but what, what we mean by that is um Doing some of the core things that we we know are really useful, so I, I I go into those now. But I would say, um, and and they apply whether you're delivering them remotely or in person. I just wanted to add to the description of my clinical work. Um, so I I work in central London area where um. So real estate is at a premium. So we don't actually have uh, uh, much space and we have to see people remotely a lot. And I've been doing remote uh, communication partner training um, for a lot of the time. And some of our clients say and family members have actually said that. Doing this kind of therapy from home has also been really helpful. This kind of links in with what um, Stephen was saying. So I, just last week, one of the wives of one of the gentlemen I worked with, she said, I don't think I could have been this open with you if I would have been if I'd have been sat in a room in a hospital talking to you. So for her sitting at home and um, in her own in the comfort of her own home and me not even physically being there, she said, Um, was actually really useful Um, what I would say then with that in mind is that actually one of the core principles of better conversations is to work with not only with the person but with the people around that person so finding a communication partner and working with them jointly not not excluding the person with communication difficulties either so I often find that I speak to people about um, how they've been delivering communication partner training, like Better Conversations. And they say, oh, I just spoke to the relative. I just spoke to the daughter or the child or the spouse and just told them what to do without involving the person. Better Conversations really focuses on inviting both of that people to the intervention and working out together. What are the, what are the things that you already do well? Not just what are the problems, but what are the things that are actually helping conversation flow already? And sometimes um, they're the things we might've forgotten to talk about um, or forgotten to mention. Oh, it's actually when you um, when you look at me uh, that actually I feel really supported or encouraged, or it's actually when you ask me a certain type of question that that helps me get a word in edgeways. Um, they're really helpful things to, to help the conversation um, not only focusing, therefore, on what needs to perhaps be modified because it's not useful, but actually what you can do more of because it's really helpful. And um, so, in essence, let me let me kind of recrap, recap. So better conversations principles that everyone can apply is involving the person and the people around them together, talking jointly with them, finding out from them what are the things that actually help that you're they're already doing as well as the things that are tricky that they they want to address and and doing that in a way that allows the people themselves to take ownership so i think what's really valuable about this approach i'm a great fan of videoing i actually think videoing is really useful it isn't great for everybody and there's some people who don't like to see themselves on video but actually, when, when we are able to video record um, a couple having a conversation and we are able to show them the conversation that they're having, sometimes it can reveal things that they hadn't noticed before. And then they will often address those before we even need to. So I often tell a story of having worked with a couple and I showed them the video and without saying anything more the husband said oh my goodness I look like I'm cross-examining a witness I don't want to do that anymore and he immediately took ownership of that that observation he'd made I didn't say anything as a clinician so actually sometimes the um core principles of better conversations include finding a way um to support that person to take ownership so it doesn't need to be in a video format there's lots of things we can do we're asking the right questions um to, to support them to reflect on their conversation giving them the time and space more often than not i have to say People haven't sat down and had this conversation. So the other thing I would say is I would it's actually really useful just to create that space to say, well, uh, do you You know, I often have conversations just the other day. I had one with a couple and he and the partner said, oh, well, do you think I should finish his sentences? And the other person was there. We didn't even need to make a video. And the other person said, no, actually, I'd rather you didn't. So just having the time and space to have these conversations is is really useful and practicing them with them. So then saying, okay, great, we've identified X, Y, and Z, let's have a go at that. So people have the opportunity to do that in a safe space. Um, And one of the things we do is we give people, we've we've developed this intervention to be delivered primarily just with one couple. But of course, um, for many clinical settings, Delivering these things in groups might also be something that they'd like to explore, and I should—I I think probably now I've said that we should have uh, um, Stephen, Suzanne, and myself. That is something we've all talked about heaps, and I think groups is a wonderful opportunity to upgrade practice as well. And clinically, I- I'm—I'm another—it's another thing I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of groups, and that can also be a really, really useful way to practice—not just the two people together. Um, but actually with with other people with communication difficulties and funnily enough um you know if people say to me often well it's actually when I'm speaking to the my loved one it's not too bad because they know me but it's when we as a couple go out and speak to our neighbors or um our friends so actually sometimes that group component actually adds another layer a, a layer of um of of value to to that um that couple and i think that's something we in better conversations are working towards so i should i should add that in as a retrospective comment as to where bc might be going in the future
0: Thanks, Anna. And not to put you on the spot here, but when I was actually looking into better conversations, I was actually thinking whether or not it will be um, possible to actually develop into like a group approach. And if you know the answer to this or any thoughts, do you think there will be some um, principles working in communication with a group that would be quite different to like communication dynamics within a dyad or do you think some things are similar?
4: I I think there are some things are similar but there are also differences and I guess and if I were to to have a conversation with you about this I might say Mm -hmm. I might ask you about your friends and, and, and family and I might say do you have the same type of conversation with your partner or your mum or your father Mm -hmm. as you do with your other friend so actually when we curate groups and there might be different conversational dynamics going on within the group which are actually really valuable for the person to practice Mm -hmm. and the the other thing to say there is um I think groups offer a different layer I mentioned about generalizing it offers lots of different opportunities for practice but as a as a the facilitator of a group um, there are also different things we're doing in therapy so for example and um, the other thing t- to think about is that when you're in a group setting as a therapist you have a number of couples it's not just you sometimes give sharing your knowledge and opinions sometimes other couples are able to share their knowledge and, and opinions so actually that's another layer that can be often very useful so for example I've often had clients say to uh, to practice their, let's say they're practicing their strategies and I can say, yay, well done, that was fantastic till I'm blue in the face. But they think they might assume I'm being generous because I'm the one without a communication difficulty. But actually when another relative says that or another person with a communication difficulty says, yes, that was the right thing to do or have you tried X or Y, we know that actually that can ha- be more powerful Than a speech and language therapist saying that. So there's some really useful things that we can harness in the group beyond just uh, focusing on the communication and conversation uh, component, but actually the therapeutic milieu, if you will, that can um, add to uh, what we do and improve our outcomes. I hope that kind of answers your question a little bit.
0: That definitely did. Thanks, Anna, for that. And I really hope all this takeaway will be very useful for all our fellow speech therapists out there, and regardless of whether you are practicing Better Conversations in your clinical practice already. And I just want to use this chance again to thank Suzanne, Stephen, and Anna to be here with us today and share experiences on Better Conversations. And to wrap things up, if all of you could each share one word to describe better conversations, what would it be? And what is one final food for thought for all of the SLTs out there?
2: Okay, I'm going to go first because thinking of one word was so hard that I don't want the other two to have stolen my word. <laughs> so I, I, I don't really want to have to choose one word, but if you make me, I will choose the word participation so i think better conversations is all about enhancing and enabling participation in all sorts of things i'll stop there and my my final food for thought is that we know that communication partner training is one of the best evidence therapies for aphasia stroke aphasia it works for all aphasia types and severities so i would ask Any speech and language therapist listening to this podcast to think about whether their service is routinely offering communication partner training to people with aphasia and their family communication partners, and if they are not, why not? Nice. Should I go next? You took my word. Mm. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to.
4: I've just butted in before Stephen, so he doesn't take my word. I'm going to say individualized. Because um, I think this is a participation based approach that is really that can be really individualized. And my my one final food for thought is that to all the speech therapists out there is that when you meet a client and their family member, hopefully, they I presume that they don't come to you and say, I want to learn 10 words uh, or I have difficulties uh, I have an anomia I I would say I would propose that people come to you and say I find it difficult to talk to my family members or I find it difficult to talk to or have conversations with people in my community in my friendship circle so I would suggest that this is the this intervention is something that people are asking us for and I would say in our research we've had we've found that that's what's come up in our research work when we've asked people about their opinions around what they want from speech and language therapy is too often they're saying we're searching for guidance family members are searching for as much guidance as people who are living with those communication difficulties sorry Stephen you'll go
3: (laughs) well thank you Anna Um Well, yeah, I've got the sticky end of the lollipop because I I elected to go third here and um, finding a word, as I said, I mean, it's it's one word, what are we going to choose? So my word in terms of um, describing better conversations is the word authentic, because I think that better conversations as an approach gets us close to what I believe speech and language therapy is really all about And a long time ago, a long time ago, when I was working clinically and I I first graduated, I went through a very kind of weird process of trying to do what I thought I needed to do, which is what I'd been taught and what I'd seen. And it just didn't feel right. And I, I ended up going rogue in some respects. I ended up thinking, well, I'm going to think for myself and I'm going to just do what I think is right. I didn't have anyone looking over my shoulder. And I used to just sit down and listen to people and talk with them about what was important to them and as Anna said they, they didn't come to me and saying, I want to be able to say this word 10 times in, in a certain way or that or the other they wanted to be better at communicating and they wanted to have more satisfying um, engagement with with their partners and I think that all of this is dealt with so beautifully and elegantly by better conversations and I think authenticity for me is just about being as a clinician, being yourself, but also allowing your clients to be as who they want to be themselves too, and and not doing something they don't want to do, but being able to talk about things that matter to them. So there's there's something there. Now, in terms of of food for thought, one final thing, I'm going to flag wave the flag for most speech disorders, because they're often framed in very medical and impairment terms. But why not also approach them from a, a social conversation perspective too? So the lived impact of Parkinson's, motor neurone disease, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's disease, et cetera, the lived experience of that is its impact on being and doing social, you know, being with people. And I think BC is absolutely perfect for this. It doesn't mean that we can't also work on intelligibility, word finding or all the other things that we do as therapists but it just reminds us that at the end of the day we are social beings and conversation is absolutely integral to showing who we are as humans and our competencies and our value so conversation to me is so so important and it's an absolute delight and pleasure I have to say to be working with with such wonderful people as Suzanne and and the rest of Better Conversations team, and all our students and our wider SLT community, because when we get the chance, as you can tell, to talk about conversation, we just don't shut up. And it's, we could go on forever. Well, Anna could, for sure. I don't know about, uh, Suzanne is is much better, but honestly, I mean, it's just so interesting, isn't it? How we love to talk and we we love to engage. And what we're doing today is effectively showing how important conversation is to us, or at least monologue for today. Right, that's it. I'm shutting up now. (laughs)
0: And I think it is only fair if Erikan and I will also share our one word when we were reading into Better Conversations. So the word that we have is reflection. So the approach is actually about the client's reflection, the conversation partner's reflection, but also more importantly, the clinician that is in the process should also reflect on how they can best help the client and the conversation partner to have better conversations. So it is clear that as a clinician, we shouldn't just tell the conversation partner and the client how to best to have their own conversations.
1: Yes, exactly. Better Conversations is not just a one-shoe-fits-all approach, as everyone is involved in the process of reflecting and making this approach work for them to reach their communication potentials. And this marks the end of our episode. So to all the listeners of this episode, whether you are a student on placement or a clinical in the field, we hope you all have something to take away with you. And thank you for joining us and we hope you have enjoyed it. And thank you again to everybody for participating today and for being so open and vulnerable with sharing your thoughts.
0: And advertisement, (laughs) and be sure to check out all the other episodes on UCL Giving Voice podcast. That's a bye from us. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.